Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we are back to green on the screen, risk on. It appears that the geopolitical risks that have been Roiling markets over the past couple of days seems to have abated here. We might be uh, at the tail end of that. But let's get some color on the Middle East in general and what's going on between the U.S. and Iran. There's nobody better to do that with than our friend Jack Devine. Jack is founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. He was also the former chief of CIA's Worldwide Operations. And he's also the author of a great book, Good Hunting, a Spy Master Story, which I do recommend. Jack, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So the past few days have been very eventful, the U.S.-Iran. Give us your sense of what President Trump tried to do when he took out this general. All right. I, I think uh, first thing I would say is this is the really the first real challenge in the foreign policy arena that the president has faced. The stakes were as high as high as you get. Um, the other thing that I would note is when you look at the decision-making process, there was a process where people did input and he, he made, a, made a decision. I think the turning point and particularly for him, uh, was when the embassy was charged, right? Now, whether the Iranians actually thought they were going to get as far and they planned, but that was where the red line was really covered. When I saw that, I knew there was going to be a major kinetic response by the the president. And I think in the end, uh, Soleimani was just on the list and he moved up. For a long time, many of the people in the intelligence military area were hoping somebody would authorize his removal. Now, he's been around a long time. It's not that he's a bad guy. You're really talking about the core of terrorism for Iran for the last you know, 25 years. So uh, that was a major blow. And um, I think, uh, as I read the paper today, uh, when they went to the Hill, um, the intelligence community Um, said, on the balance, take him out. When you were listening to President Trump's announcement uh, about the events and basically declaring victory, although not doing a victory dance, his first comments were about not having nuclear weapons in Iran. Why was that so important to you? I think it's the most important part of the speech because by the time he stood up on the podium, we had already de-escalated. The Iranians said, this is the end of it. And once they said that, it made it possible to move on. I think the key point here, and if you're sitting in Tehran, the key sentence is, you will not have a nuclear weapon. That is as hard of a red line as you can get. So as I mentioned offline, I have a lot of respect for the Iranians. I used to run Iranian operations in the mid-'80s. They are very, very good, very smart at negotiating, finding the right line. And I think what they did demonstrated their sensitivity to it. If I were in Tehran and heard the first sentence, I think the conclusion is would be, you know, we're not going to have nuclear weapons, so how do we turn this into an advantage? And that is, why don't we act like we're getting a nuclear weapon and get back to the table and negotiate away something we're never going to have anyway? So I think there's a real possibility here that uh, in the weeks ahead, there'll be some movement 
towards returning to negotiations and a back off of this? Because I think at the end of the day, I think Trump did demonstrate that, you know, we're not just looking to go to the war. They're firing the cruise missiles should be a reminder, you know, this is not going to be a bloodless event. So, Jack, you know, part of the administration's, uh, I guess, reasoning for uh, doing this operation against this general was that there was evidence of an imminent attack. Do you think that's accurate? I don't know if it was accurate. I, t- I think it's the wrong question, not from you, but from the world. I would have asked, is he going to stop what he's been doing for 25 years? If you go back to Hezbollah and taking down, the, uh, bombing our embassy, kidnapping uh, a CIA official, torture. I mean, when was it going to stop? A thousand, I think people estimate well, over. Well, then that kind of raises the question, why now? Is it, it's, it's well, like I think the impeachment the, sitting there looks awful convenient, to, and we've seen it before from presidents, uh, President Clinton. Yeah. I um, think the trigger was actually the assault on the embassy. Okay that, okay, they backed off, but what happens tomorrow? And there was not going to be Benghazi. So it was, I'm not saying this as a fact because I don't know it, but my assumption is the threat was considered so real that we were vulnerable. The only way you back them off, and I would make this this one point, we here in the United States often underestimate, both in the policy arena and the private community, what power means in the Middle East. You really have to exercise it. I'm not saying you have forced issues, but it is very much respected and it should be used judiciously. If you don't use it, you also open up Pandora's box. There's a question here. uh, If this was a true de-escalation that we've seen and it's done, then it's being perceived by yourself included as a big victory for President Trump. Some people say, look over to North Korea. What message does this send to Kim Jong-un? It's, an, it's a win for America, and I, I think we need to look at that. I mean, this is a big setback for terrorism. It put a new red line down. I mean, this is important to us. The second thing is one of the problems we have in international relations, how we roll into war, is when we have misjudgments about each other. That's why I like dialogue in private as well as public, so that we never misjudge each other, or we have red phones that uh, we can communicate. But in every capital of the world, after this, there was a recalibration. I promise you, in, in, yeah. in North Korea, they're sitting there saying, okay, there, there are new red lines and you should realize that America and this administration is prepared to use power in ways that have not been used for some time. Well, what would you say to somebody who said that, that Kim Jong-un is actually emboldened to create a nuclear weapon now in order to prevent a drone from taking him out? Well, he has nuclear weapons. That's the that's the challenge in, in this equation. Uh, and once you have one, uh, it puts you a new ballgame. None of us, well, just worldwide, no one can withstand a single nuclear attack. It changes the way the world will look at itself going forward. So he has to be dealt with differently than, uh, than Iran. And you have South Korea, the neighbor. So I think... The challenge here is to uh, get him to not make any more and maybe over time to, ameliorate, to lessen, see if he'll back off. I don't think he'll ever give up the nuclear weapons, but we might be able to freeze them. And that's basically what's been going on in the past year. If we can hold that position, that may be the best that we can hope for. But I, I do promise you that he's going to calibrate if he fires a missile, it better not be too near an American ship or that one of our allies. 
it'll he will calibrate them. do not i mean he he and the koreans have been looking at us the way the, the iranians do they study us day and night and his next move will be just like the assault um, by the iranians will be a calibrated one but i think it's much better for everybody around the world that's in a power position to look at us as if we would use power it does it reduces tension i mean reduces uh, 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 confrontation, not increases. Jack Devine, so great to have your perspective. Thank you so much for being here uh, with us. Jack Devine is founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, former chief of CIA's worldwide operations who has personal experience negotiating with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the nations that we're talking about. So really a pivotal uh, perspective here for us to be getting. Well, we speak to a lot of economists here on this program, and I think the consensus is that as it relates to U.S. GDP growth in 2020, maybe 2%-ish, which is still growing, obviously, but slower than what we've become accustomed to. But it's often good to talk to the folks in uh, the corporate C-suite to get a sense of what their economic outlook is, and our next guest does just that. Sandy Cockrell, Global CFO Program Leader at Deloitte, uh, based in New York City. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us. I know you guys just came out with your fourth quarter CFO survey. What are some of the key takeaways? So, Paul, thanks very much. Yeah, the, the, our fourth quarter survey really kind of centered on three themes that, that came across. Number one, um, CFOs are, are cautious. Number two, we saw a fair amount of pessimism. And number three, uh, really some defensive posturing that's starting to happen. Uh, 97% of the CFOs expect a downturn to, to, to hit us sometime by the end of 2020. Uh, but the silver lining there is only 3% expect a technical recession. So that's actually improved from when we asked this question back in the first quarter. Uh, it's also buttressed by the fact when we looked at the growth metrics that are forecasted over the next 12 months around revenue, earnings, capital spending, and hiring, those, all those projections were down as well and sit really at, at near low levels of our history of our survey. I'm wondering whether if you were to do this survey now, it would be different. Do you think so, given the fact that we've got some sort of trade truce between the U.S. and China, uh, they might be feeling a little more positive? Uh, it possibly. I, in discussions I have with clients in, in the marketplace, um, the, the, and you really hit the nail on the head, the real key is around trade policy. And I think if we could get to a point where we had a deal, especially with the U.S.-China trade policy, you'd really see a tailwind here pick up pretty quickly. So, Sandy, just to be clear, 97% think there's going to be a recession in 2020 or just a slowing? A slowdown, a, a downturn. So, And we asked this question back in the first quarter. At that point, 84% expected a downturn by the end of 2020. But 15% were expecting an actual technical recession. That number is now only 3%. So certainly an improvement in what people were thinking nine months ago. Did they say anything about the rising costs of uh, commodities for workers as wages rise, how much that's sort of affecting their outlook uh, paired with the opportunities for them to actually increase profits? Yeah, so in terms of external concerns, trade policy is number one, but rising labor and input prices certainly is something that they've got an eye on. The labor type market is just so tight, um, and not only is it tight, you know, what we're seeing is the, you know, kind of the really the the revitalization, the change in workforce for for highly skilled labor, and that's really on the minds of CFOs. Is you really have to pay for that talent. 
So, Sandy, one of the things, just thinking about CFOs and, and the C-suite in general, it's not just the bottom line and delivering results to shareholders. It's also seemingly greater re- demands upon you know being a good corporate citizen, whether it's the environment. What are CFOs saying about some of the pressures or some of the responsibilities and demands that are being placed upon them that maybe they didn't have a generation ago? Right. So this, this quarter, we asked some special questions around climate change. Um, and we actually work together with our European colleagues in the surveys that they execute. Uh, very similar findings. But over 70% of the CFOs have noted at least moderate pressure coming from employees, investors, customers, and boards in terms of dealing with climate change as a CFO and, and what can the CFO do to help. Uh, over 90% of those CFOs have said they've taken at least one action. And that typically has been to really review energy footprints, um, how do they use energy efficiently throughout their operations, uh, and then looking to build that, those kind of governance processes in place to make sure that there's accountability around it. Going forward, I'm wondering how consistent the view out of CFOs really was. I mean, in other words, uh, was the disparity between CFOs in different industries uh, bigger than it has been in the past, or was there more convergence? One thing that we noted um, was was in terms of this coming year, over two-thirds of the CFOs expect M&A consolidation in certain industries, and technology and manufacturing led that, so that should make the bankers happy. So, Sandy, it, I know your your survey is global. What are you hearing from some other parts of the world as CFOs think about, you know, some of these global CFOs think about uh, their global business? Yeah, so this survey was, was, was primarily of North American CFOs, but we did ask their views of the European and Chinese economies. Um, the, your, their view of the, of the European economy is pretty dismal. Only 7% felt like the, the European economy was good at this point and only 5% expected to improve in a year. Um, with respect to China, 18% view it as good, but only 11% expect an improvement in a year. And, and that's pretty interesting because when we ask about where investment focus is going to increase, North America really is kind of the diamond in the rough. It still has a 70% approval rating in terms of being good at this point. But one thing that was quite interesting uh, these companies, 37% of them said that they were beginning to look at increased investment focus in Asia, but outside of China. Interesting. Sandy Cockrell, thank you so much for being with us. Sandy Cockrell is Global CFO Program Leader at Deloitte in New York, talking about their latest Q4 CFO signals report on what all of those C-suite executives are thinking in the year ahead. Really interesting how bearish they sound. Yeah, it's interesting. Even you know, as you think about Europe, for example, we've seen the economic data coming out there suggesting that you know, perhaps it's stabilizing there and maybe about to turn. Um, but uh, you know, I guess the folks in the C-suite that are responsible for putting capital to work, maybe they don't see it quite so much. Yeah, and we talked about how much more uh, some of these companies had to pay in wages. Taco Bell is evidently offering $100,000 salaries <laughs> for restaurant managers. That, that really caught my eye. Yes. And just how much the fast food industry in the U.S. is changing in the face of low unemployment rates. The hot take on Carlos Ghosn and his press conference yesterday, 
Hell hath no fury like a CEO scorned. The penman of those li- of that particular line is Joe Nacero, who's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and he joins us at this time as we normally uh, do get some insight from our Bloomberg Opinion colleagues. Joe, uh, you were watching yesterday. What was your impression of the? <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. It was, it was, <laughs> you know. I was I was gonna call it a cluster, but uh, yeah. but they wouldn't. You did an asterisk on air. Amazingly, yeah. carry on. Okay, so um, I thought that he he was Carlos Ghosn. He was arrogant. He was condescending. He was angry. He was um, entitled. You know, highly expressive eyebrows. Yes, and hands too. I might add, yeah, hands all over so. the place. Yeah, very much. So. And then you know, th- th- then we got the Q and A, and it's basically the person who yelled aloud has got to ask the question. Uh, it was kind of crazy, but you know, it was a man who clearly viewed his job as getting revenge on the prosecutors who had locked him up all that time, and and a Nissan, a company he feels completely betrayed by. Um, whether that's justified or not, I mean, on some level it is justified. On on some other level, uh, you know, not very many people get to uh, escape to another country uh, and avoid prosecution. One of the things that I'm learning through this whole process is I'm getting learning about the Japanese judicial system, and I was unaware that they that the I guess the defendant has seems like fewer rights than you have here in the U.S. and that if you do get go to trial, there's a 99% conviction level, something crazy like that. So does he have some legs to stand on here, his argument about yes. it was an unfair conspiracy? Uh, he Well, that's two different issues. Okay. One one is how, how do the Japanese treat people that they put in prison? The answer is they call it hostage. They don't call it hostage justice for no reason. Okay. I mean, the idea is that they're going to extract a confession out of you one way or the other. They make your life completely miserable. They put you in solitary confinement. Lights are on all the time. Eight hours of interrogation a day. They can rearrest you and rearrest you. And that's what happened to him. So on that count, absolutely. On the conspiracy count, we don't really 100% know. I mean, his view is that Nissan wanted to get rid of them, and the way they did it was they, they went to the prosecutors and conspired with them to, to gin up a bunch of phony allegations. That's what he says. Is that true? We don't 100% know, but I think one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to find out because he's going to put his facts out there, Nissan's going to put, and it's going to be a war of words for the next six months to a year. Why did Nissan do it this way? I mean, honestly, couldn't they have just paid him to go away? That's what I don't understand. It's the, that's the nuttiest thing of all. It's like there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of CEOs and chairmen that companies want to get rid of. They get rid of them. And by the way, if they think they have uh, misappropriated money, they claw back money or they sue them or whatever. They don't throw them in jail for 130 days in solitary confinement. So what do you think his next step are? Is, is this going to be a, just a hit every TV network, give all kinds of interviews to get his story out there? Is that how you think this might play out? Yes, I do. And I also think he's going to, uh, I also think he's going to show some people, some, somewhere where he can get some authority, he's going to really lay out his case. He's going to show the, the paperwork, and he's going to dare Nissan to come up with counterfacts uh, uh, and then and it's going to be this war of, of paper. It's going to be a war of paperwork, you know. Okay. There's a larger question here that I find fascinating. The role of the CEO as an entertainer, as a presenter, and as sort of an actor, a showman, because we've seen that uh, with, you know, 
with a host of CEOs. I'm thinking Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> Thank you. The late, the late Steve Jobs. The late Steve, yeah. jo- Steve Jobs. Um, you know, honestly, even Alibaba's founder, uh, Jack Ma, has come out in different kinds of outfits and tried to entertain. How important is that? The sort of charisma of one of these sort of uh, larger than life personalities leading companies. I, I think in a lot of companies, it's really important. And look at Carlos Ghosn. He held, he was like Marshall Tito. He, he 